This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Five weeks ahead of the election, Governor Tony Evers announced he would increase funding for public safety measures if re-elected. According to the Associated Press, Evers proposed a 4% funding increase for local governments in 2023 and 2024, amounting to upwards of $91 million. Out of that, $10 million would be set aside specifically to support police, fire, and emergency services. Funding from state to local governments, known as shared revenue, has not been increased since 2013. The conservative law firm, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, called WILL, filed a federal lawsuit today to block President Joe Biden's plan to forgive student debt. Will claims that the student loan forgiveness plan is discriminatory, taking specific issue with its effect of reducing the racial wealth gap for black borrowers. According to the Associated Press, the lawsuit also argues Biden's plan represents an overreach of executive power and that it could cost up to $1 trillion, a figure over triple that of the U.S. Department of Education's estimate of $300 billion in the next decade. Similar lawsuits have been filed in other states, including a Republican-backed suit in Missouri that objected to forgiveness for federal loans owned by private banks. The Biden administration quickly responded to the Missouri lawsuit, announcing that the private loans of 770,000 borrowers will no longer be eligible for forgiveness. The debt relief plan is expected to alleviate financial hardship for up to 40 million Americans. Applications are slated to open this month and close on December 31st. A McFarland High School administrator who used the N-word while speaking to a student has resigned following petitions from the community to have her fired. The Capital Times reports that Ann Nichols, the former associate principal and district equity coordinator, submitted her <clears throat> letter of resignation to the McFarland School Board on Monday evening. In her letter, Nichols acknowledged the harm that using that word can have and apologized for her mistake. The McFarland School District superintendent shared the news with staff and district families on Tuesday morning and announced his intention to develop a specific plan to address the issue. The school is currently searching for an interim associate principal for the remainder of the school year with the goal of finding a permanent replacement by spring. Unity Point Health Meritor Hospital announced it is building a new training center in an effort to help address the shortage of health care providers in Dane County and across the state. The Wisconsin State Journal reports the new Jeff Levy Education Center will support nursing education and recruitment and training of other health care workers. Construction of the $6.9 million facility is supported by donations from Madison businessman Jeff Levy and the Meritor Foundation. UW Health announced that Epic Systems has also contributed a significant donation to expand nursing recruitment, providing funding for youth and adult apprenticeship programs. Wisconsin faces a shortage of more than 8,000 healthcare workers, nearly 3,500 of which are concentrated in the Madison area. Madison Common Council President Keith Furman announced today that he has received six resumes to fill the District 17 seat vacated by Gary Halverson last month. Halverson left the council after his name was identified on a membership list for the far-right nationalist gang called the Oath Keepers. Halverson said that he was a member for just a few months before recognizing its far-right ties and leaving the group. With the application deadline now closed, the council will hold a special meeting on, on October 20th to interview the candidates and then will appoint a new alder on October 25th. This appointee will serve on the seat through the rest of the term, and if they want to continue serving on the council, will need to run in the April 2023 election. And now on to today's top stories. Few 
few lawmakers were in attendance for today's special session to bring binding ballot initiatives to the state of Wisconsin today. It was a move which Governor Tony Evers sought to allow Wisconsinites themselves to decide if abortion access should be legal in the state. After the short session, top state Democrats railed against the Republican-led legislature for their inaction. WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout went to the state capitol earlier today to follow these events as they unfolded. The state Senate met for all of 15 seconds today for a special session to debate bringing binding ballot initiatives to Wisconsin. The session was called by Governor Tony Evers last month as a way to let Wisconsinites themselves decide on whether or not to bring abortion access back to Wisconsin. And despite an objection from one of the three senators in attendance... Senate President Chris Kapinga, a Republican, gaveled today's session in and right back out without debate. Thus ended the 11th special session called by Governor Evers, all of which but one were gaveled in and right back out. Senator Melissa Agard of Madison was one of the three Democratic senators in attendance, along with Brad Paff of Alaska and Tim Carpenter of Milwaukee. Agard says that it's disappointing that she sees Republicans ignore what the people of Wisconsin actually want, regardless of the issue. It is a real reminder of how that consolidation of power by the majority party, primarily due to gerrymandering in Wisconsin, allows them to be completely defiant Um, against what it is that the people of our state want. Evers proposed a constitutional amendment to bring binding referendums to Wisconsin that could be brought by any Wisconsin citizen if they gathered enough signatures. These referendums could be on any topic, but the idea was to allow the voters themselves to decide on abortion access here in Wisconsin. According to the latest Marquette Law School poll, 63% of Wisconsinites oppose the overturning of federally protected abortion rights under Roe v. Wade. After today's short session, over 100 people gathered at the steps of the Capitol building to hear top state Democrats chastise the Republican-led legislature. One woman, Allison, was holding a sign reading 1849 voters, all white, all men. She shared her thoughts on today's special session. There is no thought on that. I mean, why do we have these people as elected officials if they don't want to represent us? The gerrymandering is one thing, but, you know, it's our job now to get rid of these people. It's time for our voice everybody's voice to be heard. Dr. Mary Stoffel and Dr. Beth Weedle are OBGYNs here in Madison. They pointed to the dangers that the abortion ban can have on women's health. Here's Dr. Stoffel. Inserting politics into reproductive health care is detrimental to people's health and threatens the sacred patient-physician relationship. People need to have access to safe and legal abortions. And we know what will happen if they don't. People will die and poverty will worsen. This will disproportionately impact people of color, people with inequities, low-income people, as as well as those who live in rural communities where access is much more difficult. Next to speak was Democratic State Senator Kelda Royce of Madison. Royce says that if someone has a miscarriage, abortion is the only answer. Everyone. Everyone loves someone who will need an abortion. When Republican politicians criminalize abortion, they are condemning you or your loved one to suffer, to be treated like a criminal, or forced by law to endure a pregnancy and birth that they don't want or that harms them. That is the choice. 
Abortion is basic health care that approximately one in four American women will need in her lifetime. Democratic Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer of Racine says that she fears for the future of everyone in Wisconsin if the abortion ban were to hold. As the Dobbs decision leaked, I spoke with a lot of women in my community who had tried to access reproductive health care before Roe v. Wade. One woman talked to me about a botched abortion that left her fearful that she would never be able to have children. Another shared a story about her work as a social worker and a child, an incest victim that she worked with and how scared they were that that child would not live through the delivery of her child. Also at today's press conference was Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor Sarah Rodriguez. Rodriguez currently serves as the state representative for Brookfield and serves on the state's health committee. She says that her time on that committee has given her a first-hand look at how Wisconsin Republicans view abortion. So I've seen their agenda up close. And this is what they have done. When all these men, and they were men who were testifying on all of these anti-abortion regulations, I asked simple clinical medical questions. And what did the chair of the committee do? He gaveled me so I should stop asking questions. And he called me a nasty woman. Finally, it was time for Governor Evers to speak. Evers warned of not only the moral and medical future of Wisconsin if the abortion ban is allowed to stand, but the state's financial and workforce future as well. If this continues, our accreditation to prepare OBGYNs will be taken away from our medical schools here, there and in Milwaukee. And if we can't train OBGYNs, the people that will help all of you if you're in this situation, who in the hell, which we have a shortage already, which OBGYN are we going to get to move to this state? It ain't going to happen. It's, please. And as for today's special session, Evers says that he's mad that, despite over half of Wisconsinites wanting legal abortion, the Republican-led legislature refuses to even debate the idea of putting the issue to the voters. Of course I know in the, in the end analysis they would likely not make any changes to that law. But at least have a discussion. At least have, you know, put yourselves on the, on the, on the, on the, the dais and, and, and have a discussion, lead a discussion about this. That's just outrageous behavior. They haven't, been, they haven't been here since March. What's half a day? What's a day? What even, even if it carried over into two days? What's up with that? They're not doing their job. They're getting paid to do this job. They're not doing this job. Meanwhile, the Madison Abortion and Reproductive Rights Coalition for Healthcare, or March, will be holding a march this Saturday, October 8th. The march will begin at noon on the Library Mall across from the UW-Madison Memorial Union. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
One major source of PFAS pollution in Madison comes from the Dane County Regional Airport, near a city well that was shuttered in 2019 due to elevated levels of these toxic chemicals. A pilot study into how to clean these chemicals, though, shows promise that they might not be so, quote, forever after all. The solution? Well, that's microbes. In a press release today, Dane County announced that these microbes, in conjunction with a technology called BAM, was able to produce a PFAS removal rate of 97% over time. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Michael Rickers with the Dane County Airport to learn how the microbes can help address Madison's forever chemical problem. So, Michael, just to sort of start things off here, tell me a little bit about the cleanup efforts over at the airport. You know, without without getting too technical, what did this uh, cleanup look like? Well, this cleanup effort uh, really came about uh, back in 2001, and if you, you know, go into the lab side of it even before that, but it's, uh, it's a really innovative way to approach this problem, and PFAS is often referred to as a, a air quote and forever chemical. And what a Verona based lab uh, was set to kind of find out is if that's true. And they, start, they started with a uh, 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 naturally occurring uh, microbe and uh, in lab scenarios, they tested it and realized that um, this microbe actually broke down the compounds of PFAS. And so they, um, started, like I said, in the lab and then uh, kind of drew that into a larger test out at the airport with soil that had been extracted but placed into large plastic tubs above uh, ground. And that proved successful and ultimately ended up with an in-ground test that has been running now for about nine months, um, each with you know equally impressive results, consistent uh, results from lab to uh, soil testing now here at the airport. And those microbes, that's BAM is what it's called, the bioavailable absorbent uh, media. Uh, so so you mentioned that, yeah, that that's sort of a big play into the cleanup. Do you know, uh, I want to ask, has, has that been used elsewhere, that technology, or is this sort of a pilot for uh, the BAM technology? Uh, well, this specific technology, we're the only place, uh, only airport in the world using it. And that's, again, because it was developed uh, in our backyard over in Verona, Wisconsin. So there are other labs, um, very, very few, but there are other labs that are trying to develop um, a way to break down PFAS compounds. Uh, but as far as this specific microbe, uh, we're the only airport using it in the world. And, and a small clarification, so the, uh, the, the BAM technology is just one component of kind of this three-part series. So um, BAM existed. Uh, uh, it was developed by a company up in Canada, um, Fixed Earth Innovations. So what BAM does is it, it tracks the PFAS, um, the, the compounds of PFAS. It, it acts like a sponge, and PFAS is attracted to it. Um, and before Orin came along, uh, you know, the BAM technology was great, but then now you have this material that uh, has been attracting PFAS, uh, to it, and what do you do with it? Uh, you have to then extract it back out of the water or the soil, wherever you had the BAM, and then you have to dispose of it uh, properly, which can be quite difficult, uh, knowing how uh, difficult it is to dispose of PFAS properly. So uh, what they did was, with this microbe that they, they found out can break down PFAS, um, the two work hand-in-hand. Hand. So um, the way it was described to me is, is 
PFAS or the, the microbe is looking for PFAS to basically eat. And what BAM does is provides it a buffet. It concentrates and attracts PFAS. So this microbe just has this supply of, of PFAS to break down. And as I mentioned with, with the initial testing, uh, and, and keep in mind, we are still very early in this process, but um, when it first went into the soil, they realized that the microbes needed oxygen, uh, more oxygen than the soil currently had to be able to sustain life and, and continue to break down uh, the PFAS. So they added um, uh, electrodes basically to oxygenate the soil and uh, between the uh, electrodes, the PFAS, micro, uh, the PFAS eating microbes in the BAM, the three work hand in hand, like I said, to, to really have impressive results uh, of breaking down PFAS in soil. Sticking with the, the BAM and the microbes for a second, what, what happens to them once the, once the PFAS is gone? Does it, does it sort of stay in the soil and in the groundwater or does it sort of, what happens to it then? So that's a great question. So, um, in the immediate future, the, the microbes are going to be continuing to look for PFAS to eat. Um, and then nature kind of takes over. If there isn't enough PFAS to sustain the microbes that are there, the microbes start dying off. And what's left once the microbes die off is a fluoride ion. And, and like we had mentioned before, I'm certainly not a scientist, so uh, much beyond that, I would refer you to uh, Larry Kinsman over at Orin. Uh, but it, the microbes eventually break down to a naturally occurring fluoride ion in the soil. Um, but, you know, like we've been saying from the beginning, this is a, a pilot study and we're working uh, very closely with the DNR uh, throughout this whole process um, to make sure that, you know, this, what's left behind after the pilot study, after the microbes are done breaking down PFAS is, uh, you know, safe for the environment, safe for the water, safe for the soil. And so now, Michael, the whole reason we're sort of doing this interview today uh, is because earlier today it was announced that the cleanup pilot program uh, uh, is looking like it can remove around 97% of the PFAS in the area where the microbes and the BAM are applied. Can Tell me a little bit about those results. What, what, what did you sort of find with those? Yeah, so those results. Um, are you know, like I said, we're we're about nine months into the pilot study right now, so they're they're not final. Um, and what the study has been showing is that those microbes are going to continue to do their job until there's no food left. And as far as they're concerned, the food is is PFAS. So the the good news is the longer that they're in the soil, they're just gonna they're going to keep breaking down PFAS as as the microbes find it. Um, so. So far, um, there's a down gradient testing well, and what that means is groundwater under the soil, it, it flows in a certain direction, and we have a testing well that was placed downstream, if you will, um, from this, this pilot testing area, and the average rate of reduction over the nine months has been 97%. Now, it does ebb and flow. Um, there's uh, uh, numerous variables out in the wild that um, can affect it based on uh, rainfall amounts, the, the, the groundwater levels, things like that, far beyond my scope of knowledge. Um, but the average rate of reduction in that down gradient testing well has been uh, 97% over those nine months. And we're confident, like I said, that if left in the ground, that these microbes will continue doing their job. And that is to break down the PFAS. And so now with these, with these sort of uh, preliminary results, what, what does this mean for the future of PFAS removal at the airport? 
Well, it's been incredibly exciting. Um, with, with innovative technology, you know, you, you don't want to put too much uh, faith into it too early um, because, you know, being among the first or the first in the, the world doing this kind of thing at an airport, at least with this specific microbe, um, we wanted to make sure that it works, and we're still very much in that phase. We we need to make sure that this is reliable, repeatable. It's not just a, a fluke, if you will, that this happened. Um, but every indication that we have over the nine months is that this is working, and the the, the proof is in the in the data. So we hope to our, our our plan at this point, after these initial results, is to extend this study over to other areas of the airport that are known to have had the, the PFAS uh, contamination in the soil. And that's, that has to be looked at comprehensively because there are a lot of efforts at the airport um, to, to identify and remediate PFAS. And, and specifically, the National Guard is, is in the middle of their circle of process. And, and I don't want to speak on their behalf, but um, what that means is that they're doing, uh, the Air National Guard is doing an investigation um, on what PFAS might exist in the ground that could be attributed to uh, firefighting activities on behalf of the guard. And so we're allowing that investigation to take place. Um, but beyond that investigation, there are known areas of the airport that are likely not going to be incorporated into that investigation. So that's what we're going to target next with this uh, PFAS pilot project. Going from there, what, what does the sort of timeline look like going forward now? Uh, what, what happens now? Uh, so in the immediate future, we're um, discussing these results with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And uh, so far, we've been given every indication that they're supportive of us expanding this project uh, geographically on the airport. So um, at this point, we're just going to shift our focus not away from the pilot study, but we're going to shift it to moving that technology to other areas of the airport, uh, namely the Darwin Firefighter Training Area, uh, which we know um, to be a contaminated area um, and start uh, deploying this technology there using the lessons that we've been learning over the nine months. So, um, you know, our, our hope and that our, our goal is to maintain or improve uh, the rates of reduction that we've seen in the pilot test area. I've been talking with Michael Rickers with the Dane County Regional Airport about the results of the PFAS removal pilot program. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you so much. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop speaks with state news editor Tyler Katzenberger about the closure of interstate blood and plasma in downtown Madison. And so for so many, interstate blood and plasma downtown was the only accessible location that they could go to to make money off of plasma donation. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. 
I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by state news editor Tyler Katzenberger to discuss the upcoming closing of interstate blood and plasma and its effect on students. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tyler. Thanks for having me. So where did the idea for this story come from? I was actually out to brunch with a friend of mine um, who works at Interstate, and they told me that the Interstate Blood and Plasma Bank was closing. And so that really kind of threw me off guard because I know a lot of students that go to the Plasma Bank um, to make a few extra bucks off donations. And so I thought it would be a really pertinent story to look into um, as it relates to students on campus. Interstate Blood and Plasma seems like a very popular business right now. Why is it closing? So the reasoning that corporate gave, according to operations director Mitch Armstrong, and that's the operations director for the location of the downtown campus, corporate said that the location just, I guess, wasn't bringing in enough money or enough profits. Um, It sounds like this was part of a national closing of up to or potentially over 30 different locations. And so according to Mitch Armstrong, I guess they just didn't make the cut, uh, at least the downtown location. Um, Yeah, and so unfortunately that means that Interstate Blood and Plasma will be closing uh, its doors and will not accept donors after November 3rd. Why is this location important to students? What other options are there and why are they less accessible? So there are other options in the city of Madison. You have two interstate uh, plasma donation centers, one kind of over by Verona Road on the west side, and then one on the east side, um, up East Wash, kind of close to East Town Mall. There's also a BioLife Center over on East Town Mall, but the problem with those is that they're 30 minutes or more by bus. Um, and so if you're a student, that's 30 minutes out, like an hour of donation, 30 minutes back. That's like, that's two hours out of your day. And finding two hours out of your day anytime between like eight and six, that doesn't really happen when you're a college student. And so for so many, Interstate Blood and Plasma downtown was the only accessible location that they could go to to make money off of plasma donation. You explored the impacts this will have on students, especially financially. What did students tell you about why they donate plasma to make money and where are they at right now in their financial situation? So as a student, if you go to donate plasma twice a week at Interstate, um, the rates would change, but you could make like $150 a week or more, which per month, that's like $600 a month, which for anybody who lives around here knows 600 can pay your rent actually. So that means that you're investing like two, three hours a week to pay your rent, which is huge for a lot of students, especially low income students who are already working to cover like tuition costs, cover utility costs, cover the cost of their groceries, their food, all that stuff that adds up beyond rent. And this really keeps them afloat during the year. I know for a lot of people, it's um, like their bar money or their fund money. But for me, that's like grocery, that's grocery money that puts food on my table. Like, I'm not having that dining meal plan to depend on anymore. Like, this is my own, I just put it in the words, it makes me nervous a little bit. So the problem is, is now that Interstate is closing, these students have to find another way to supplement that income. And to find something as efficient and as handy as plasma donation is not, I mean, it's just really not feasible. The students you talk to, what are their plans to start making up for that lost income? So one of the students, Kaylin, she didn't really have a plan. And that's kind of the sad part of this. You know, she said she's going to try to pick up other hours at her job. Um, you know, she said she's going to try to look for just other ways to make money. But 
she was really left without a plan. Um, there was another student who found a part-time internship, but he wasn't working before. Um, and then one of the workers there, uh, Charlotte, you know, she's now without a job and she needed hours to get money for physician assistant school um, after her bachelor's. And now she's scrambling to try to find a place where she can do this. It's definitely really stressful. I already feel like I'm behind getting patient care hours for PA school. So then having to find a new job and take some time off is really stressful. I'm definitely going to have to take a gap year. Um, and I do kind of feel like I'm a bit behind now. That's, I think, the worst part of this. It's a really sobering reality that the students who are left without this plasma donation center now and left without that income don't really have another good way to make it up. And so now they're in a tough spot. So besides providing financial benefits to students, Interstate also provided patient care hours for students who are pursuing a medical profession. Can you explain that aspect of the closing a little bit more? Yeah, so I touched on this a bit earlier, but um, let's say you're a student that wants to go to like med school or physician assistant school. Um, during your undergrad, you need to get like a certain amount of patient care hours. Some students will become like a certified nurse assistant um, at like Meritor Hospital or UW Hospital. Um, some uh, might work in hospital volunteering, and then some might go into phlebotomy, which is like pulling plasma or pulling blood from patients and working in blood donation centers and plasma donation centers. And so Interstate was one of these businesses and one of these places where you could get those hours. And so if you're unable to get those hours, that means that when you apply to med school and PA school, you're gonna be behind a lot of other candidates applying and it's really going to look like you haven't met the requirements you need to get in. And again, for a lot of the students who are doing this, med school and PA school are their ticket into a well-paying career. And a lot of times they're not always coming from backgrounds that are already flush with wealth. So when you take away that resource, um, you know, you're taking away kind of a, a ticket to these students' future. Is there anything that you learned while talking to students that maybe surprised you? I think the surprising thing to me was just how important plasma donation is, because I think when we think of affordability in college, we think of, you know, rent's too high, we need to bring rent down, or grocery costs are too high, we need to find a way to get students cheaper food. But we don't think of something like plasma. And remember that this is a thing that when students go often enough, they might get a permanent scar <laughs> at the plasma draw site, um, you know, sometimes there's bruising, like you're literally taking, you know, tons and tons of plasma out of your body. And your body actually has to replenish that too. Like when you're done, you really need to go eat a good meal, get some water in you, possibly rest up. Um, you know, students are putting themselves through that and it's essentially important to their financial plan. And I guess that's what shocked me is that students go through these great lengths just to make ends meet. And then, you know, somebody comes in and says, well, it's closing, you know, and we don't have answers for you. I, I guess that feeling of hopelessness for these students has just really, really impacted me. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? I think students should know that being a student in college who doesn't have everything paid for or, you know, maybe struggles to make ends meet and really has to do... Um, a lot of their fundraising per se for their education all on their own. You know, there are a lot of unexpected resources in the community that they access. 
And so if I think you have to remember that when you're looking at decision makers in the community and as you're learning to become a decision maker in your community, you need to pay attention to these kind of, kinds of things. You have to understand what kind of resources the people in your community use, especially the people you know, who have the least and need the most. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Tyler, and sharing your reporting with us. Again, thank you so much for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. For many Wisconsinites, fall is an important time to go into the woods and hunt for deer, turkeys, and other game. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg provides hunters advice on how to protect both themselves and the environment while out in field and forest. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about hunting season coming up, the types of injuries and maybe even diseases that we see in wildlife that might want to be on your list for avoidance or just being knowledgeable about here during this hunting season. It's really important to share this information as wildlife rehabilitators because we see frequent hunting accidents and frequent disease prevalence, especially during time periods where humans are coming into contact with wildlife. And it is now the fall season, and this is where we see deer hunting season, turkey hunting season, morning dove hunting season, uh, you know, we've got waterfowl hunting coming up, and we know that there are a lot of hunters here in the state of Wisconsin. And whether you live in an urban area where you're traveling or going out to hunt, uh, there's some things that you probably should know ahead of time, which you might already, but I uh, think it's probably worth talking about. Uh, the first that I want to talk about is that hunting accidents can happen. And we know that although you may intentionally want to be out there shooting a deer during hunting season, there are chances that you might accidentally injure an animal versus kill it. And that is the hardest thing I think for rehabilitators to have to deal with. Um, our center, for example, very frequently sees morning doves, for example, that are shot but left injured and they don't they aren't deceased, although you you know you hope that you're able to obtain that animal. We see a lot of waterfowl that are shot, so geese would probably be the highest on our list at our wildlife center, in addition to other species like mallard ducks or a lot of your migratory waterfowl species. We don't generally see deer, but we have many reports of deer that are injured and maybe limping or have had some sort of projectile, maybe through a leg or through a body cavity. And sometimes that animal is actually really difficult to capture. So, you know, keeping your eyes and ears open just in the community to see if you notice any sort of injury that might have been accidental during the hunting season is important. But also if you're a hunter, if there's any way that you're able to potentially mitigate the situation to try to contain or capture that animal in the moment, that's definitely the best case scenario and getting that animal to a local rehabilitator. So in that case, you want to definitely visit the Wisconsin DNR website for the list of local rehabilitators in your area. Just make sure you have that on hand or maybe keep a tab up on your phone or something in the case of an accident or an event that does 
happen. We also know that there are a number of animals that are accidentally injured that shouldn't be hunted. There's been some great papers out there talking about the percentages or the numbers of animals that are unfortunately killed in hunting that are for example, protected species. And that, honestly, we see a lot in our raptors. We see red-tailed hawks, we see turkey vultures. Our wildlife center has seen eagles that have been shot and sandhill cranes. And in our state, it's, it's not legal, but maybe in some other states it may be. It's just a really difficult thing because, you know, obviously we don't, we don't want that animal to be injured if it's, you know, under a federal protection, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, for example. And that can really make an impact for those species that might be of lower populations. So I think of bald eagles, which have definitely had a big comeback. We really hate to see a bird that has such a long lifespan, you know, 30 years or more into the wild, unfortunately succumb to some sort of injury like that. That's very painful and then causes more work than on the wildlife rehabilitation community to have to kind of fix that that problem that a person or people have caused. So yeah, it's, it's a high percentage, um, unfortunately. So yeah, it's an unfortunate thing that we do deal with in our field, but um, we are here to help and we we don't try to judge hunting practices we understand that that's a part of a sport in wisconsin uh you know people do find enjoyment out of that and in some ways some hunting does provide back to conservation efforts which obviously funding through the dnr does go back in that way that being said rehabilitation doesn't get any of that funding because that's not part of our state programs so it's all pro bono on our end to help uh, save that animal that might have been injured In addition, we do have wildlife that have certain diseases. And I think if you're coming up to this hunting season and you're thinking about, you know, okay, what do I do if I accidentally shoot an animal? What do I do with it? Where do I take it? Rehabilitation, definitely. But what if you saw an animal that maybe was diseased or ill or looking like they were sick? You know, what do you do in that situation? Well, there's a lot of diseases out there. Uh, Right now, we're still dealing with avian influenza risks, and I think that's an important one to consider during this waterfowl hunting season. But we also have things like chronic wasting disease for deer. You know, we've got rabies to think about if you're doing a lot of mammal trapping or hunting. There's a whole list of different diseases that you you should definitely be familiar with. But I wanted to point out the uh, AVMA, which is the American Veterinary Medical Association. They have a really great disease precaution for hunters page on their website. So if you go to avma.org, there's some great resources there. And it does have an entire list actually of protection guidelines or just like common sense guidelines if you are gonna be hunting. And some of those include just like for yourself, like, you know, don't go hunting if you're not feeling well this year, you know, obviously, talking about things like COVID-19 or avian influenza. If, if you're not feeling well, you're more prone to disease if for some reason you were to take an animal that was diseased and that might be zoonotic, which means it could spread to people. Obviously, we still have insects out. We've got ticks. We've got mosquitoes. That's really not fun. So just wearing your appropriate gear, things that they suggest is not handling or eating any wild game that you might have, you know, hunted. And if they appear ill or if they're acting really strange or abnormal, you know, just to, to be on the safe side, you know, discarding of that cart appropriately and in some cases not even leaving it out there for another animal to obtain because what if it was you know acting abnormally from lead toxicity and now you're spreading that that type of toxicity through the trophic cascade in the environment so you know maybe talking to your local health professionals dnr biologists uh, wildlife rehabilitators with some options like what do you do in that situation you definitely want to use gloves if you can i mean if you're field dressing an animal there's blood there's a lot of things that are bloodborne diseases you, some of your diseases are going to be fecal to oral transmission so if you get fecal matter on your hands for some reason while you're processing 
an animal and you accidentally, you know, wipe your hair or something happens where you get that into your eyes, you get your eye or something, you know, there are ways that you could get internal parasites from wildlife. So, you know, definitely don't use the same utensils that you were using to dress or clean a species and then use it for something like, you know, eating, for example, or at least make sure that it's fully sanitized before you're going to do that. If you see any sort of abnormalities in the chest cavity of the animal, you know, maybe consider disposing of the entire carcass. You know, that's a big one that's on their list. And definitely minimizing contact with brain or spinal tissue because we think of things like CWD, which is a, a brain prion. And whether or not they have any sort of normal or abnormal behavior, I think it's important. Uh, spinal fluid, you know, obviously that fluid can have a lot of things that could be potentially zoonotic depending on the species and depending if a virus or prion or something is present. Definitely avoiding using lead if possible. This is the time of year we always suggest, you know, please don't use lead in your hunting practices just because if you were to accidentally, you know, shoot the animal in the abdomen, for example, and you've got uh, lead contamination and spray, you know, if you're going to go home and potentially, you know, dress that animal and eat the meat, the spray from wherever you hit it, it's very possible that it can spray actually a pretty large distance and lead toxicity in humans is not great either. And people that are, you know, pregnant or you have young children, if they're also eating that game, you can't see it really. It, I mean, if you were to x-ray it, you might be able to see the fluorescence of that lead metal in the meat, but you can't see it just from the naked eye usually. And so generally, you know, it's obviously more painful and the animal just suffers needlessly. If you do shoot that animal in the abdomen, best to, you know, obviously aim for the heart. That's where most people do or for the head. And so, you know, definitely if it's a large game, you want to, you want to shoot cleanly, humanely and preferably avoiding the abdomen. So I would highly recommend going through a lot of those those recommendations. It also goes into, you know, how, you know, what kind of temperatures, um, maybe ice, uh, using that for keeping meat cool, washing your hands, all the different things that you want to do. And then also temperatures to, to cook your, your uh, species. Again, not something we necessarily think about as wildlife rehabilitators, but I think it is important for humans that are working with wildlife to know this information. And we also use those same similar practices in care when we are working with, like, for example, our carnivores are our predator species. So, you know, we might prepare some type of meat diet for a raptor, and we still have to think about all of these things to keep ourselves safe too. So that was today's segment, just talking about hunting, accidental shootings, what do you do, make sure you have your list of rehabbers, maybe some disease prevention guidelines that you can look up through the AVMA website, just things to kind of keep you safe and informed during this season um, and know that wildlife rehabilitators are here to help give advice regardless of what situation you end up being in with that animal. So thanks for listening today on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.53 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, hosts Zach Pace and Dan Rabarczyk look to solve the mystery of the sudden dimming of a distant star. Today on Radio Astronomy, an exoplanetary oddity. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Zach Pace. And I'm Dan Rabarczyk. We have a very specific picture of what a system of planets looks like. After all, we can only see one, ours, up close. 
but a recent finding tells us a little about the diversity that's out there in the galaxy. As always, things are getting messier and more complicated. To start off, let's refresh your memory about what we're used to. Our solar system's eight planets all orbit the sun, which is a medium-sized star. The rocky planets orbit close to the sun, and the gas and ice giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are farther out, taking decades to complete a single orbit. For all their diversity in size and chemical makeup, all the planets in our solar system are pretty regular in shape. They're all spheres, and they're all thick enough that they're entirely opaque. What's more, they're all much smaller in size than the sun. This should make sense, because planets have smaller masses than stars. And less massive things orbit more massive things. But recent analysis of observations from the Kepler spacecraft are indicating that things can get much more complicated. Kepler takes a picture of a star once every few minutes, and scientists make a graph of how the star's brightness changes with time. This is called a light curve. If we receive less light for a moment, that shows up as a dip in the light curve. For example, Kepler observed a young, low-mass star called Epoch 2043-760-71 twice during its K2 observing campaign. But during the second set of observations, the star suddenly dimmed by almost 80% and then slowly returned to its original brightness. Of course, we know exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than our sun, can produce dips in a star's light curve when the exoplanet passes between us and its parent star. But it's unthinkable that a planet could block 80% of the star's light. After all, planets are supposed to be much smaller. What's more, whatever is blocking the light must not be symmetric side to side. For ordinary planets, the dip in the light curve will look the same at the beginning and the end. But as this object was ending its eclipse, it did so slower than expected. So, what could be responsible? One of the preferred solutions to this puzzling observation would be a planet that is surrounded by a cloud of debris. If the cloud is fluffy enough, it could be much bigger than the real size of the planet that it surrounds. And as that planet and cloud move around the star, the cloud would shed material behind it more than it does in front. So the eclipse would look different on its leading edge from on its trailing edge, just as we observe. The second possibility is that there's just a simple cloud of dust orbiting the star, which we saw by chance as it passed in front. But there are questions about how long a cloud like this could last around a star in the first place. The star is only 10 million years old, but some people think that the star's light would break apart a cloud of stray gas and dust in less time than that. So, it would be great to know if there's actually a planet orbiting this star. Astronomers can do this by looking at the effects of a planet on its parent star. The planet will tug on a star as it orbits, and if we look carefully, we could find signatures of the star's movement along our line of sight. This is called the radial velocity method of finding exoplanets, and it requires precision instruments called spectrographs, designed to very precisely measure the light that we receive from a star. If astronomers can measure the parent star wobbling, it might indicate that there are planets surrounding the star. And if a planet matches up with the orbit of the mysterious dip, the mystery may be solved. A state-of-the-art spectrograph is set to be installed on the Wind Telescope, which UW owns a share of, next year. So we may hear more about this soon. But that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us today, and have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Kristen Billing. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show. Nate Wagehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm Hi. your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and find us on your favorite podcast app. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News at the, with an Nuestro Patio. Good night.